Hello and welcome to Retrieving the Social Sciences, a production of the Center for Social Science Scholarship. I'm your host, Ian Anson, Associate Professor of Political Science here at UMBC. On today's show, as always, we'll be hearing from UMBC faculty, students, visiting speakers, and community partners about the social science research they've been performing in recent times. Qualitative, quantitative, applied, empirical, normative, on Retrieving the Social Sciences, we bring the best of UMBC's social science community to you. Today's episode is all about a topic that is near and dear to my cold and wizened professorial heart. That's right, we're talking about higher education. Each semester, I find it very instructive to engage my students in discussions about the costs and the benefits of college because, well, they always seem to surprise and intrigue me with their answers. Some students are super enthused about the value of their UMBC education, seeing it as a direct line to prosperity, to self-actualization, and well-roundedness. Others, well, others aren't so sure. And I've heard any number of skeptical critiques of the value of college. And I can't say I blame them, really. Social media discourse is often critical of college as a pathway to an increasingly tenuous middle-class lifestyle, and a lot of students feel the weight of that price tag even before their first semesters are in the books. Thankfully, students don't have to rely on social media bloviators and televised talking heads to give them the lowdown on the costs and the benefits of college. Social scientists are working hard to understand how higher education benefits students amidst a rapidly changing social and economic landscape. That's one of the primary research interests of today's featured guest, Professor David Card. Dr. Card is the Class of 1950 Professor of Economics at the University of California, Berkeley, the Director of the Labor Studies Program at the National Bureau of Economic Research, and the President of the American Economic Association. Oh, and need I mention one little piece of breaking news? Dr. Card was recently awarded the Nobel Prize for his work on the minimum wage. While we won't always feature Nobel laureates on the podcast, I'm really glad that we invited Dr. Card to campus when we did. Those lofty credentials aside, Dr. Card is a prolific author of books and academic journal articles, and his work has been cited over 78,000 times, at least according to Google Scholar, which means that there may be even more citations out there that even Google doesn't know about. For those not in the know, 78,000 citations is... Well, it's a remarkable, a staggering testament to the quality and the relevance of Dr. Card's ongoing research. In the fall of 2020, we were fortunate to host Dr. Card virtually as he delivered the year's Mullen Lecture, sponsored by the Department of Economics. Dr. Card has some definitive ideas about whether college is still worth it for students in the present economy. Let's listen in. So uh, by way of introduction, um, many people uh, will probably be aware from the tone of conversation that they hear amongst um, uh, analysts and others that the United States at one time was the world leader in education 
after the, in the period between 1940 and uh, 1980 or so, U.S. had the highest or nearly highest share of high school graduates uh, amongst all countries in the world and the highest share of bachelor's degree students uh, of all countries in the world. And those uh, educational advances really are thought to have um, benefited uh, not just the individuals who went to college or high school themselves, but also society as a whole, uh, helping to contribute to growth in the economy. We've basically fallen behind, and that falling behind actually began quite a long time ago and is now really causing significant problems, not just for, uh, as I said, not just for people who should have gone to college but didn't, but also for society as a whole. And um, so now, of course, women are much better educated than men. Uh, more likely to have a bachelor's degree. And so, but both of them are below the trend where we might've thought we would be. So what went wrong? Uh, what caused this reversal for men and slowdown for women in educational investments? Uh, well, there's a couple of factors and they're kind of related to each other. Uh, and I'm just gonna highlight what we know about that. So the first factor was the baby boom. If you um, know anything about the U.S. history, you know that people born around 1955 or so, that was the largest cohort um, in U.S. history in terms of births. So that was the peak of the baby boom. So what I'm going to argue in the next slide and try and uh, give you some visual evidence of is that the baby boom coming through college, about halfway through the baby boom, all of a sudden we stopped investing in education. Uh, so about halfway through the baby boom, people going to, into college was people entering in the early to um, early 70s. And uh, actually a very important um, uh, person from Berkeley perspective, someone who had been a, a, um, a leading administrator on the Berkeley campus in 1971, wrote a book called The New Depression in Higher Education. Now, we're, we're always having new depressions, in, in, but this was a, a quite a remarkable, a prescient book that noted what was going to happen. You can see this very sharp rise from 1940 to about 1960. 57 was actually the peak. It's about an 80% rise. Then it fell off. Now, what does that mean? Well, that means if we were going to try and keep the level of education for all those kids born in the 50s, if we were going to try and keep their level of education up, we were going to have to expand capacity of the university system. And there was some of that going on. But by 1970, people were looking forward and saying, well, we maybe don't want to invest quite that much because we could have a lot of extra capacity once this big baby boom goes through. And so what actually happened and the number of BAs produced it, uh, was more or less flat from about 1972 to about 1990. So with this combination of rapid increases in the number of people who are in the cohort, but a fixed fraction of number of BAs, there was a lot of uh, congestion on university. There wasn't enough capacity to let everybody go to college. So there's a lot of research on how much that mattered. And the best guess comes from a paper by uh, two economists, uh, John Bound and Sarah Turner. And they estimate that this big increase in population between 1950 and 1957 caused about a seven percentage point lower BA rate in the cohorts born. A second factor uh, in terms of what was the difference between men and women is it used to be that not so many women went to higher education. So if you look at people born uh, or people graduating in the 1959 to 60 period, about only about a third of those BAs were being awarded to women. By uh, 1979 or 80, it was up to a half. And today it's around um, 60%. So it, what that did in combination with rising number of children who would want to go to college, 
kind of a fixed capacity of the education system, not much investment. And now a lot more women wanting to go, it basically squeezed out the men. So those two factors really contributed to um, a very bad situation for a man born in the, uh, say, between 1955 and uh, 1975. So people that would be kind of towards the end of their um, working careers now or in the late Middle Ages. So what were the implications of that wrong turn in the 1970s? Well, one of the implications of that wrong turn was that we are far below where we would have expected to be in terms of education in the economy. So instead of having steady growth in, in education and the amount of human capital in the economy, we're now in a situation where relative to that trend, we're several years behind in terms of average educational attainment. And those losses have big causal effects. So if you have two less years of education than we would expect you would have had, then you're probably earning something like 15 to 20% less than we would have expected you to earn. There's also a very important spillover because if you have uh, less education, chances are your children are gonna have less education. I want to acknowledge in my talk that many, especially economists from not outside of my, my home institution, believe that education uh, choices are driven by student demand rather than by th what, we, what I would call as an economist, the supply side, rather than the number of seats available. Now, I suspect that many students and people on campus today find that a little bit hard to imagine, but there are still quite a large number of economists who believe that the thing that drives education is students wanting to go to education, not how many slots are available. So there's a way to test that. One way to test it is if you think that what we're doing is we're constraining the availability of good university slots, then that means that there's not enough people with high education, and that means that the returns to education will be quite high. So not enough people are getting that advanced degree, then the labor market will say, well, we need more advanced degrees. We can't find them. They're going to have to raise their wages. So that our economists have always looked for the gap between the wages that college educated workers earn and the wages that high school graduates earn as a measure of whether there's kind of a shortage of university graduates. The alternative idea uh, that some economists uh, still persist in, in make, uh, proposing is that People don't want to go to college because they perceive that there's not a return to college. And actually, for the last few years, you've, once in a while, you'll see an article in the newspaper or somebody saying, well, it's not worth investing in education because it's so expensive. We're not going to see turns. Everyone can point to uh, their favorite cousin who went to college and can't get a job, which, of course, isn't quite right because that cousin wasn't going to get a job no matter what. But th that, that's the kind of uh, argument that you often hear. So what's the story with the returns to education? Has it really kept up or has it failed? And here's what we see. This is an um, important series that the, you can download from the Census Bureau. This is the college high school earnings gap. So it's the proportional wage difference between someone with a bachelor's degree and someone with just a high school degree. And it's kind of standardized for how old they are. So you think of it as kind of an average across different age ranges. Another check that people have uh, suggested is to look at the role of education in the labor market as a whole. So rather than focus on whether there's a return to an individual of obtaining a, a university degree, think about differences across cities. So think about a city like San Jose, California, where Silicon Valley is located. That's the place where high education is in huge demand. What can we say about that? Is there any evidence that, 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 that that's having an impact? Um, and so one way that people have investigated that is to look at the relationship between average wages in a city and the amount of education in that city. So uh, about a, 
if you're if you're in a, a commute zone CZ with 10% more college grads, you're going to earn about 8% higher wages, holding constant your own education. And that suggests that there's this, again, this sort of underinvestment going on that we really need more educated workers and we're not getting them and the market is trying to react to that. A third benchmark that we could think about is comparing the United States to other countries. Now, I grew up in Canada. In Canada, everyone is always thinking about how we're doing relative to the United States. And if you're a European, the French are always comparing themselves to the Germans. Uh, Germans are comparing themselves to the, the French and so on. So this comparative perspective is important. In the United States is a little less uh, common, but I, I think it's actually fairly insightful. So what can we do? So there's two obvious ideas. Uh, one is to increase the availability of higher quality college slots, which I think everyone in college age and presumably many people in the audience would really strongly support. A related idea is to try and improve K-12 education so that uh, young people are actually college ready and able to make that leap to a, a four-year college or to a, a high quality college. And again, there's pushback, uh, especially from economists uh, of more conservative nature who believe that simply uh, increasing spending on education isn't necessarily going to have a payback. And there's two arguments that they make. One is that just spending more doesn't do anything because the money gets wasted. And the other argument they make is the kids who are on the margin, those who say are just getting through high school and thinking about college, but not quite going to make it, uh, make that decision for sure. Those are the kids who are, you know, right on the boundary between going on or not. Those kids aren't going to succeed in a, in a good college because they basically don't have the skills. Uh, there was a long body of research starting in the 60s, another legacy of the 60s, that suggested that uh, school resources don't have much effect. And um, Eric Kanishek, who has given one of these lectures, is one of been one of the leading proponents of the view that uh, school resources don't necessarily lead to any big ex, uh, benefit. Now, a lot of the research that uh, that's uh, uh, reviewed, say, in this famous paper by Hanushek in the 80s or discussed in the Coleman Report is research from a long time ago. And what really happened in my field of labor economics is a really great expansion in the way that we uh, collect evidence and try and understand whether that evidence suggests uh, kind of causal relationships that people would focus on. For instance, whether uh, improvements in school quality and spending could benefit students. And a really important contribution in this area was a paper by my uh, the person who this lecture is dedicated to, Alan Kruger. In 1997, he reanalyzed an experiment that had been done in Tennessee. It was called the Project Star, where they took a bunch of uh, entering kids, kindergarten and first graders, and gave them a much smaller class. And what he showed was what that experiment had always kind of showed, but was thought to be um, less clear than he ultimately showed it was, was that there was a huge uh, gain to those uh, students in their test scores. And subsequent work to Allen's has shown that that ac actually persists into higher earnings and um, less involvement with crime. So lots of returns to that investment. So um, what we've learned is from the, from the STAR experiment that Although it had relatively small effects, say on ninth grade test scores, so this was an investment for grades one to three, although it had relatively small effects on the test scores in high school, it had a relatively large effects on the fraction who entered college, particularly for kids from disadvantaged backgrounds. Uh, a second uh, somewhat related study uh, by Lafortune, uh, Rostein and Schanzenbach looks at statewide funding system reforms. Many of the states uh, between the 1980s and today have adopted programs to, 
to increase spending at low-income districts quite a bit relative to where they were. And they show that there are large returns to that, uh, those kind of reforms, uh, particularly in the test scores of children in low-income districts. And finally, uh, I'll mention this one last study that LaFortune and Scholl, um, Schoenhauser have a, a really interesting study of a big school building program in Los Angeles. Los Angeles, like many other large cities, had let its education system kind of deteriorate. And there were a lot of uh, very low quality K-12 and schools all over the city. And they uh, built 150 new schools over the 1990s uh, and early 2000s. And these uh, two guys studied the effect of that improvement in um, physical infrastructure of the school system and found big positive effects on test scores, on student effort, and actually on local housing prices. So people recognized that these new schools were such a, a gain for the neighborhood that they were willing to pay more to live there. So we've learned that uh, uh, we've learned that there are um, big benefits to spending money on K-12 education, which pay off in terms of readiness for college and the fraction of kids who go on to college. What about college itself? Uh, there's a, a growing body of research uh, in that area, which also supports the idea that um, improvements in college quality or uh, kind of uh, colleges that students can access actually benefit students. And uh, I'll mention, so to summarize then, what can we say? Well. I think we can say that things went wrong in the 1970s in the U.S. It looks like it was a very uh, difficult period for um, the education system, and that ended up leading to much lower levels of education for people born in the 60s than for people born in the 50s, particularly for men. There's ample evidence that the problem is not that there's low returns to going to college, rather that there's a shortage of good slots at higher quality colleges possibly combined with a, a, a group of students who are a little bit underprepared uh, and could benefit from better preparation and could use that to leverage themselves into a, a, a slightly better college attainment. So it looks like investments in K-12 and higher ed both can pay off. And I would the last thing I would say is all of the evidence uh, that any of these studies that I've mentioned, almost all of it has the same character, which is the gains that we could make by investing more in education would have particularly large benefits for children from um, more disadvantaged backgrounds. It's really important for us to think more broadly and the broader perspective says that we've underinvested for a very long time and need to try and do better. Campus Connections. Campus Connections. Campus Connections. Campus Connections. Campus Connections. It's time now for a regular segment. This is Campus Connections, a part of the podcast where we connect today's featured content to some of the work happening on UMBC's campus. I'm grateful to Dr. Card for providing me with some data-driven suggestions for my college-skeptical students. But in today's Campus Connection, I'd like to take a look at some recent UMBC research which further nuances the debate over the benefits of college. Pamela Bennett, Associate Professor in the UMBC School of Public Policy, recently published an article in the journal Ethnic and Racial Studies, along with co-authors from Syracuse University. Dr. Bennett and her co-authors investigated college dropout rates and academic achievement among minority students at selective American colleges and universities to see whether affirmative action policies actually undermine student success. If minority students struggle at selective colleges, it raises the question of a mismatch between the institution and the student's preparation meaning that despite everyone's best efforts at attaining greater equity, underrepresented students fail out 
and nobody benefits. Well, thankfully, that doesn't seem to be the case, according to Dr. Bennett's research. Using a tool called the Education Longitudinal Study, the authors showed that potentially mismatched minority students didn't actually drop out at selective institutions any more than other members of the student body. And according to the authors, mismatch does not appear to prevent students who may have benefited from affirmative action from obtaining important credentials from America's elite educational institutions. Dr. Bennett's research really resonates with me when I recall the lessons of today's featured guest. Dr. Card gives us renewed certainty that college is a good bargain for students and our society in general, even if the costs do seem incredibly high. It seems that policies designed to bring those benefits to underrepresented groups, despite their perennial detractors in the media, may still help spread those vital rewards to deserving students of every kind of academic and personal background. That's all for today's episode. Until next time, keep questioning. Retrieving the Social Sciences is a production of the UMBC Center for Social Science Scholarship. Our director is Dr. Christine Mallinson. Our associate director is Dr. Felipe Filomeno. And our production intern is Jefferson Rivas. Our theme music was composed and recorded by Dewan Moreland. Find out more about CS3 at socialscience.umbc.edu. And make sure to follow us on Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, and YouTube, where you can find full video recordings of recent UMBC events. Until next time, keep questioning.